Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. I know I may have mentioned a few weeks ago that we'd return back to Psalm 119, and I plan to next week, but I changed my mind on where to divide this section. Um, The three verses we're looking at this morning, I think, function both to introduce the next section, but to close off, to cap, to finish the first section. In fact, my ESV Bible puts verses 16 and 18 in that first section on trials. And so, having come through a number of weeks of trials, three funerals, numerous cases of sickness, I I thought this would be a fitting text to look at this morning. I'd like to read that entire first section, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 18. Have a word of prayer, and then we can uh, look at the three verses we'll be focusing on this morning. So join with me. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. His flower falls, his beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but... Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Lord God, um, we do not want to be deceived. We want to understand you rightly, your goodness, the goodness of your gifts, So give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Give the increase. Cause your word to bear fruit, to grow, and take root in our hearts. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. The title of this morning's message and the one central point I want you to get this morning is God only gives 
good gifts. God only gives good gifts. You can see how this section both closes out our first major section and introduces the second. We're back again to the topic of trials that was begun in verses 2 through 4, developed in the subtopic of wisdom in trials. He comes back to it in verse 12, the blessing for persevering in trials, the crown of life. The danger of, in trial and temptation, blaming your temptation on God, looking for an excuse not to persevere, not to grow strong in faith, but an excuse to disobey. It's not my fault. God's tempting me. He now further corrects that. Not only does God not tempt, he only gives good gifts. This section also begins the topic of the next section, which is about hearing and doing the word of God. You see that at the end of verse 18. He brought us forth by the word of truth. And in doing so, James is following his pattern of introducing the next thought with what he closes out the verse with. Just as you see him end verse 4, you can be complete, perfect, lacking nothing, which sets up verse 5. But if you lack wisdom... So verses 16 to 18 close out the first section on trials and introduce the topic of the next section, our response to the word of God. That's how it fits in. We're going to look at this in two points only. Two points, but we've got to drive this point home. We need to be confident on the character and nature of our God and our Father. Point number one, know that God only gives good gifts. No. Become certain. Confident. Do not doubt. Now, this first section, verses 16 to 17, comes in two parts. A warning and then instruction. So let's look at the warning first. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. James is left talking in the third person, which is where he was before. Primarily, he's addressing the congregation, the churches abroad, as beloved brothers and sisters. But just recently, starting in verse 12, it was third person. Blessed is the man. And then verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted. But each person, verse 14, is tempted. But now he's back to direct address. My beloved brothers, don't be deceived. That's the imperative verb. That's the command here. We are commanded not to be deceived on this point which means we should pay attention when the Bible says, do not be deceived, which it says in a number of places. Paul issuing this charge, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, usually important topics. Do not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. The suggestion is there's reason or possibility that we might be deceived precisely on this point. So don't read over this too quickly. When God tells his people, hey, do not be deceived, we should expect deception is a real possibility in this point. What is it we're not to be deceived about? Well, I think most directly what he's just said. God does not tempt his children. I think he's further hammering that point home. 
He forbade us saying that, any one of us saying that. He talked us through how temptation actually takes place, how it's our own desires that lure and entice. He pressed out the progression of when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is full grown, it brings forth, it births death. And that all tracks back not to God, but to our own desires. Now, he comes around the other side. Let me tell you in contrast to that about the God you call Father. Do not be deceived. God does not tempt his children. And that was the point of our last message in James, so I'll, I'll move on from here to the second point that I think is also implicit in what he's saying. Maybe you don't think God tempts you, but maybe you're not convinced God actually loves you and cares for you. Maybe you think God's kind of like maybe a father you had, who at times is nice and at times is gruff, at times is loving and at times is harsh, at times does care for his children and other times doesn't. There are earthly fathers like that, are there not? And so perhaps that might be the temptation. James is not only going to insist God doesn't tempt, he's going to insist, there it is at the top, God only gives good gifts. So you're blank here, God only only intends good for his children. God only intends good. And we're saying this in the context of trials. This is, I think, how this book ends the section. At the beginning, count it all joy when you enter trials. And we say, I don't want to. Trials are hard. I can endure anything but temptation. And here, we are to see them as good things from God. We see God's character is good behind them. Understand, know this, believe this, God only intends good for his children. Romans 8, 28 and 29, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things. COVID works together for good for the love of the, for those who love God. This past election cycle works together for good for those who love God. All things, the movement of the stars in the heaven, growth of the grass and the ground, every drop of rain, God is working all things, not some things, not a lot of things, all things together for your and my good. I think that's the type of point James is making here. We got to be warned. We got to believe this. We dare not look at anything as coming from a stingy hand coming from an unloving or uncaring hand. The warning, do not be deceived. God neither tempts you, nor does he intend ill for you. He only intends good for his children. So do not be deceived. And then he gives some instruction. We need to know the truth to guard us from errors. The best way to identify error, there's all sorts of ways errors can creep in. Best way to avoid errors is to know the truth. So he gives us instruction. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Notice the emphasis here. Good, perfect, totality of goodness. It's actually an hexatomic meter here. He may be quoting a phrase from an early doctrinal statement. He may have just coined it. It's poetic. What seems a little clunky in English, every good gift and every perfect gift actually is rhythmic, beautiful in the Greek. What's he getting at here? First, every good thing you have is a gift of grace. How many many good and perfect gifts don't come from above according to this text? How many? Zero. 
So, consequently, every good and perfect thing you have comes down from above, and it is a gift. And if it's a gift, definitionally, it is a grace. Contrary to some of our attempts at Christmas and birthdays, you, you aren't obligated to give gifts. They're gracious. You know, you know how you can feel, oh, they gave me something, I gotta give them something. But that's not the idea here. This is a gift. Gifts are undeserved. They're not earned. They're not purchased. Every good thing you have, every perfect thing you have, came from one place and one place only. It came from above, and it came as a gift. You did not deserve it. This is, this is important to get this, understand this. One of the reasons we may tend to think of God as less loving and less good is because we think of ourselves as far more righteous and far more deserving than we should. If you don't view the good things you have as gifts, you will not view your father as generous. You may even be tempted to think, he kind of owes me a bit more. I mean, why why didn't you give me more? It's a gift and it's grace. In fact, we've talked about how James is echoing Repeating, dependent upon the earthly teaching of Jesus, I think the teaching of Jesus most closely connected to this, at least that reverberates in my mind, is in Luke 11, when Jesus says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Earthly parents don't give harmful, hurting, dangerous gifts to their children. At least they shouldn't. How much more your heavenly father? Trust in his character. Trust if it's coming down from him. It's good. It's a good thing. It's not a stone. It's not a scorpion. It's good. Now also understand that good needs to be put in an eschatological context. Good does not always mean happy right now. Good means in the view of eternity, in view of your eternity, this is good. It's a good thing. It's a perfect thing. It's a fitting thing. There is nothing that has come into your life that in eternity you will say to God, you did a good job with human history, but I really think it would have been just a little better if it had gone this way instead of that way. You won't. And so James is telling us every good thing you have is a gift of grace. Point two, every good thing you have comes from the giving God. I phrase it that way because that would be a legitimate way of translating verse five. In verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. But the Greek literally, you could translate it, let him ask of the giving to all God. You know, you have sometimes have those charts with different names of God, Jehovah Jireh, Lord Sabaoth. You could put up on that chart, the giving to all and not reproaching God. I think that would be textually justifiable. We worship the giving God. And he's reminding us, again, bringing this full circle, every good thing you have is a gift, it's undeserved, and it comes from one place. It comes from above, comes from the giving God. Okay? So every good thing you have, I mean, every good thing you have, And you have more good things than you know you have. I certainly do. I'm not aware of the least amount of the good things God gives me. Each breath, the strength to stand here, every good and perfect gift, every one of them comes from one source only, from God. He's not tempting you. He's giving you good and perfect things. 
coming down from, here's an interesting title for God, the Father of Lights. The Father of Lights. God is connected with lights in many places, but I think this is the only place in the Bible he has this particular title, the Father of Lights. What's he mean by that? Well, the lights, and I think the NIV even adds in heavenly lights, and the context makes clear, he means the lights in the sky, the lights up there. What's he, what's he getting at? Well, first, God is the good creator and sustainer of all things. When you speak of the father of something in this way, it means the author. Listen to Job. Has the rain a father, or who has begotten the drops of dew? And in that sense, God is the father of the heavenly lights. He's the father of the sun, the moon, the stars. Why mention that here? He's pointing to us more good things. Why did God make the stars? Genesis tells us he made them for our benefit. Genesis 1, 14 to 18. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights the greater light to rule in the day, the lesser light to rule in the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. It's the father of lights. Why did he make the lights? For many reasons, to declare his glory, but so that you and I could have light, that we can know days and seasons you know, sometimes you may give someone you love a, a clock or a calendar. God put his calendar up in the sky. You ever think of that? If, God, if God's desire was simply to allow us to tell days and seasons and times, there could be like 12 stars that take turns, the January star and the February star. He could have done that. What lavish calendar has God given us? It is good. He's the father of lights. They come down from the Father of lights. God is the creator and sustainer of all things. The sun, moon, and stars declare his goodness. And this is a theme the Bible picks up. James understands we may be tempted. He doesn't want us to be deceived. He knows that as we look at our circumstances, as we look at what's coming upon us, we can be tempted to think this isn't good. God isn't good. He's not loving me. He's actually tempting me. He's not being kind to me. Look at how he's treating that other person. Look how he's treating me. And he's pointing us to signs of God's goodness. Because the logic is, if you doubt the goodness of God and the goodness of his gifts, you will not persevere under trial. You will not attain a crown of life. You will not mature and grow strong in your faith. Sin will be birthed. And when sin is full grown, it will birth death. So he wants us to settle in our minds. You don't have to know how it's good. The Christian doesn't say, I can explain to you how everything that's come into this world is good. I just know that it is in God's purposes for his people. It's not that you claim to understand why this is good. But rather, I trust my father. He hasn't given us a stone or a scorpion. He gives good things. And then you, to bolster your faith, you look to the stars. Aren't those good things? The same God who's the father of the stars is my father. Coming down from the father of lights. Psalm 8, 2 to 3. Meditating on the stars. 
says this, when I look to the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man? You are mindful of him. Or in Psalm 136, which is a call and response Psalm. No, that's not Psalm 136. Psalm 136 is right. There it is. Listen to this. The call and response, they'll, they'll give a reason to praise God, and the response is, for his steadfast love endures forever. Okay? To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. And the logic is he's giving evidences of God's steadfast love. You're to, oh yeah, oh yeah, his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. We, we could spend all morning going through texts just pointing to how the stars declare God's goodness and glory. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the goodness and the glory of God, right? You, you know this. And so by calling God the Father of lights, he's bringing to our mind some of the good things God has given from above. Okay? That's the logic here. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Okay, and here's the point. Unlike the stars, God's goodness does not vary. Unlike the stars, God's goodness does not vary. Now, in space, they're not waxing and waning, but from Earth and our vantage point at different seasons, Venus is bright, Mars is bright at different seasons, the moon is waxing or waning, the sun can even be eclipsed, the heavenly lights waver in their brightness. They're not constantly bright from our perspective, right? And so what James is saying is, unlike them, he made them, and he's so much far above them that unlike them, as great as they are, as awesome as they are, as wondrous as they are, they wax and wane. They, they, they have shifting shadow. With this God, who is our Father, there is no variation or shadow due to change. He is constant. As 1 John says, in him there is light and no darkness whatsoever. He is good through and through. He is good yesterday, today, and forever. He is good always. This is his character today, and it will not change tomorrow. You can't say, well, maybe God's having a bad day. He used to be kind. He used to be good, but not now. There's no slightest bit of change or wavering in him. Unlike the stars, God's goodness does not vary. God is good and does good all the time for his children. Now, that's what you've got to settle in your mind. Do not be deceived. God only gives good gifts. And so when you see something that doesn't look good, you need to fight by faith. You need to remind yourself by faith. You maybe need to go outside and look at the stars and see some of the good things he's made. Of course, this is going to be difficult. That's why he says, don't be deceived. He knows it'll be challenging. So I'm not saying this is easy. What I'm saying is you've got to understand it is important to fight back by faith when your heart says, this looks like a stone. This looks like a scorpion. If you take a bite, you're going to break your teeth. 
Take a bite anyway, trusting that it's bread, it's good. Your father is good and he gives good gifts. But he doesn't leave us there. If we just had verses 16 and 17, that would be good. But verse 18 really proves the point emphatically. Not only are we to know that God only gives good gifts, but point two, see that God only gives good gifts. He's going to give us an example. You should hold on to this. If you struggle with really believing, trusting in the goodness of God and his good intentions towards you, not just God's good in an abstract sense, He's good to you, and he's only good to you, and he only gives good gifts to you. Even when those good gifts result in funerals, or sickness, or unemployment, he only gives good gifts. He causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. He gives you an example you can look to. Of his own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. You want to see that God only gives good gifts? Look to your own regeneration. Look to your own spiritual life. You want proof? You want something to remind you even greater than the stars? We were just in Ephesians. You know, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once formerly walked according to the prince of the world, according to the God of this world following by nature the desires of the lust and the mind of, of the, sorry, the desires of the mind and the flesh, and we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest of mankind. But God, so the rich love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. You, you want absolute proof of God's goodness and his good intention towards you. You need to understand he birthed you spiritually. This is another contrast with sin. The same Greek word used here of his own will he brought us forth is the same word used in verse... i got to get to James, don't I? Um, that would help. It's the same word he used in verse 15. When sin is full grown, it births, it brings forth death. So there's one road regarding trials and temptation. You don't persevere. You don't count it joy. You grumble. You blame God. Sin comes into the world. Sin is left unchecked, not repented of, not resisted. And it births death. God birthed you. That's how distant these two options are. Don't blame God for sin. He doesn't bring forth. He brought forth you. He birthed you. Your regeneration proves the goodness of God's gift. And to understand this, i got to jump into some of the theology he's assuming here. I think it is commonly believed that we are born again because of something we do. If I were to ask you, how how can someone be born again? Don't, Don't tell me, but think of how you'd answer that question. The Bible nowhere tells you how to be born again. Nowhere. It tells you how it happens, But what I mean is nowhere does the Bible say, do this, and you will be born again. Don't believe me? Turn over to John 3. Turn over to John 3. Keep your finger here. This is crucial. Because if you think the new birth is something you initiated, something you started, you're not going to see it as the gracious gift of God that James wants you to see it. Right? So Nick at night comes to talk to Jesus. 
Okay, some of you will get that on the drive home, and some of you are too young. Now, there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, by verse 16, Jesus will tell Nicodemus how he can be saved. Don't misunderstand me. Our salvation has many elements to it. There's the adoption of sons, there's the receipt of the Holy Spirit, there's the forgiveness of sins, and there is the new birth, regeneration. But the Bible can deal with them distinctly. So Jesus says to Nicodemus, it is essential, it is necessary that you're born again. You can't go to heaven unless you're born again. He never tells Nicodemus what he can do to be born again. He does tell Nicodemus what he can do to be saved. You must believe. You must trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. How can I have eternal life and not perish? What must I do? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's something you can do be saved. There is nothing you can do to be born again. This is Jesus' explanation. Look, Nicodemus, how, how can I enter back into my mother's womb, right? Verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now look how Jesus compares the new birth and what he compares it to. The wind blows where you tell it to go. Or you ask it to go? Does the wind go where you invite it to go? The wind goes and blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. The Spirit births life where he wishes. And you don't know where he's going to birth life next. And you don't know where he's come from. You know it when he happens because there's spiritual life. Jesus insists, as does James, and here's your blank, the new birth is solely a result of God's good will. I, I, I make this point here because if you think the new birth is something God did to you because you asked him to do it, that's not as good of a gift, is it, than... You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and God birthed you. Now, to be clear, we are not forgiven until we believe. The new birth does not equal forgiveness. The new birth is the change of heart or the removal of the veil or the giving of ears to see, ears to hear, or eyes to see. It's what enables us to believe. You were living your life, and you cared nothing for God and his righteousness. You loved your sin. And then one day, I would say in the context of God's word, you became convicted and your heart changed. And you began to see things differently. Those are the evidences of the new birth. It's the cause of faith. We believe because now we can see and now we can hear and now we can feel and now we can understand. And from that vantage point where the curtains pulled back, we see Christ, we see the gospel, we believe. You really do that. But you had as much to do in your spiritual birth as you did in your natural birth. You played no part in it. It is a sovereign work of God alone. 
of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth. God wants that glory. He wants you to see that grace. And if you see that, do you understand his goodness? You didn't merit it. You weren't even asking for it. You weren't even looking for it. You were his enemy. You were his alienated creation, rebel against him. You were following the God of this world. You were intent to defy him. And he made you alive of his own will. You think he only gives good gifts? You've got to give God the glory and the credit for the new birth. The wind blows where it wishes of his own will. He brought us forth. Now he did it. We saw in John 3, the spirit is the member of the Trinity who does it. And he does it through the agency of the word. The spirit only gives life in the context of the word. It's why when we evangelize, you can't make people alive. We sang that this morning. I cannot make my soul to live. You sang it because James teaches it here. But we can throw out the seed of the word. We can give the spirit things to work with, can't we? I can't make the spirit blow where he doesn't want to blow. I can't make him go where he doesn't want to go. But if the new birth is the spirit through the agency of the word granting a life, I can certainly make sure the word is present. I can scatter that seed. And 1 Corinthians 3, one man waters, one man plants. God makes it grow. In the context of 1 Corinthians 3, that's the evangelism of the church at Corinth and the sanctification of the church at Corinth. Paul shows up and he scatters seed. God makes it grow. Apollos shows up and he waters the seed. God makes it grow. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Point three, the new birth is accomplished by the word of truth. God's word has always created God's people. This is no new pattern. I don't think we have time to go there, but I'd encourage you, go back and read Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones. God takes Ezekiel in a vision to see a valley filled with dry bones. It's a picture of Israel scattered, dead, and he's going to bring them back to life and clothe them. And what does he tell Ezekiel to do? Preach over the bones. And as Ezekiel preaches over the bones, sinew and muscle comes back on. They come back to life because God's word is always what God uses to create God's people. It's his weapon of choice. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. You were born again, not because of anything you did, wanted, asked for. Perhaps because others were praying for you. But because of God's good pleasure. Because it's his good will to take people hostile to him and turn them into sons and daughters. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And he tells us a purpose for why he did that as well. Why does God birth people by the word of truth? That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. First fruits, an interesting concept. My spell check doesn't even recognize it as a word. Um, it's probably not a word you're used to unless you're reading your Bible. But in Leviticus 23 and other passages, it, it is a number of things. God claims the first fruits, they're his. But in the context of the new birth and salvation, it appears to be used as a promise of a coming harvest. I think that's how Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 16. 
1 Corinthians 16. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. Literally, Greek, the first fruits in Achaia. Paul had a ministry in Achaia, but these are the first fruits. Same thing happens in Romans 16. Five, greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Paeonitis, who was the first convert of Christ in Asia, who was the first fruits in Asia. And so I think the idea here is first fruits serve as a promise of the coming harvest. Now remember, we're far off from James. James writes this letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion greetings. He's writing to a largely Jewish church in the first century. And so I think here's the logic. The early Jewish church served as God's guarantee of the far greater gospel harvest throughout the world. James is writing to the remnant of Israel who believed, the few who trusted in their Messiah, and he says, God made us alive. He birthed us to be a kind of first fruits. This first generation church is a, is a guarantee of the far greater harvest to come because God is saving more than just them. And then as it extends to us, look at that last little phrase, of his creatures or of his creation. I think he has even more in mind here than just the first century church promises the 20th century church. I think he has something more in view. Turn, turn to Romans chapter 8. You want to see the goodness of God at work, what he has planned, his good things planned. We serve, believers serve, as the pledge of God's intention to renew, redeem, and restore all of creation. And in that sense, we, with the first century church, we, with James's first hearers, serve as the first fruits of an even greater harvest coming. Paul speaks of this in Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy of comparison with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. Why is it that the creation would eagerly be waiting for our redemption and resurrection? For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That makes it clear he's not talking about Satan. Satan doesn't subject the creation to futility and hope. God did that. He cursed the creation in response to the man and woman's sin, but he's promised to undo that curse. And the creation eagerly waits that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. What's he saying? Track the logic. You want evidence of God's goodness and that he only gives good things. Consider 
him making you alive spiritually while you were his enemy. And consider also that the church, his people, serve as a guarantee of some far greater work. Because he says, the first fruits of his creatures or of his creation. And consider the goodness of a God who intends to redeem all the created order. Where there will be no more sickness, no more death, no more COVID, no more funerals. Our new birth promises that, guarantees that, serves as the first fruits of that. Dwell on that and consider the goodness of God when you're tempted to grumble, when you're tempted to think he doesn't care for you. Remember his goodness. Remember his loving kindness. Trust that just as a father doesn't give his children serpents and scorpions, he may not give us what we ask for, but he doesn't give us bad things. And from that vantage point, be able to count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Because these trials come from a loving father's hand for my good, for my growth. Again, view good in that bigger sense. This is good for me because it causes me to trust Christ more. This is good for me because it causes me to know Christ more. This is good for me because it teaches me endurance. He only gives good things. We're going to close this morning with one of my favorite hymns. We sang it at my father's funeral. I want to read a couple lines of it to you while the worship team comes up. I think it, I think it expresses this confidence. Day by day, And with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here, trusting in my Father's wise bestowment. I have no cause for worry or fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto each day what he deems best. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. Help me then in every tribulation, so to trust thy promises, O Lord, that I lose not faith's sweet consolation. Offered me within thy holy word, help me, Lord, when toil and trouble meeting, ere to take as from a father's hand. Help me, Lord, in toil and trouble, to receive it from you as from a father's hand, one by one, the days, the moments fleeting, till we reach the promised land. Please stand as we sing.